Welcome to this episode of Woman to Woman podcast. Our guest today is Michelle Ferguson. Michelle is a global transformational executive and a serial mentor and a strategic advisor. She spent most of her career with SNP Global and Macro. She is also acknowledged as an advocate for women and is a proud founding member of Chief, the only private network focused on connecting and supporting women executive leaders. She is also the author of Women Mentoring Women. Michelle, welcome to Woman to Woman. Thanks. Great to be here today. Now, I'm so glad. There's so many interesting questions I want to ask. And knowing your background, I just can't wait to hear the answers. So let's start from the childhood. How was your childhood? Where did you grow up? So I am the oldest of seven children, which may play into a lot of what's happened since then. I'm the, uh, I'm the oldest. I have five brothers after me in line. And then my sister is nine and a half years uh, younger than I am. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways... <laughs> have prepared me for the, the work world. Because when I entered the workforce, and it's still to some extent uh, the issue, an issue now, right? There were more men than women. And I was comfortable being in an environment where there were more men than women. In fact, when I went to college, uh, the university had only gone co-ed four years earlier. So we were, I think, outnumbered four to one. In my business school program, there were 60 of us and there were only 12 women. So sort of being outnumbered by men was something that I was used to. And being the oldest, um, I think I developed leadership and organizational skills very early in life um, and learned how to resolve conflicts early in life. So I think, you know, my, my, uh, I guess my takeaway from childhood is like sort of whether it's good or bad or whatever it is, there's something you can learn from it, right? And it it does impact you for the rest of your life. So had a great childhood. Were there certain people that really shaped your life growing up? Probably the people who shaped me the most were my actually my grandmothers, and they both they both worked outside the home. And um, you know, one of them, believe it or not, worked in the post office, and the other one was a seamstress. But you know, especially the seamstress one who was here and she was in the Bronx and commuted to New York City, got on the subway like she was a working girl. She got dressed in the morning, got up and commuted to work. And they, you know, and she worked even when my mother was a kid. So they were sort of my model that uh, a woman could work outside the home and could have uh, a career and raise a family and be a good a good mother and a good grandparent at the same time. So probably they influenced me more than anybody else. So once you got to high school, what was the plan in life? And what were you going to go to college for? What did you want to be? So, you know, I think the plan in high school was to go to college, right? That was sort of the plan. And a lot of my high school experience was, what do I need to do, like to improve my chances of getting into college and getting into the school that I wanted? And I was, I was one of those uh, girls, uh, sort of unusual at the time. And I guess it wasn't unusual. We just, it wasn't encouraged, who was kind of the math and science gal, right? So I was, you know, always better at math. You know, I scored, I think, 110 points higher on my math SATs than I did on my verbal. So, you know, it was about like taking the right classes to get into college, um, doing the extracurricular things that would help me get into college and also working when I could because I was going to pay my own way through school. So um, and I was kind of realistic and things have gotten better about how much financial aid I would get. So I knew that a good part of the burden would be on me. So that was sort of the the plan was just go to college. So once you got to college, you changed majors. Why? Yep. 
Yeah. So I started out as a science major <laughs> because I was a science gal and I went to a pretty competitive school. Um, and I think that's one of the big adjustments on college is, is yeah, you know, even if you're hot stuff in your high school, right? Like I was in the top five of my class or something, you get to college and everybody's like, <laughs> you, right? Everybody's really smart and really accomplished, really athletic, which I'm not. Um, and uh, so it was, I started out as a science major. Uh, and it just, for as much as I loved it uh, and did well with science and math in high school, I did not do, do well. Uh, and it was sort of, you know, the rude awakening of like, you know, the first, I got a warning letter, I think in calculus, my parents did. And like, I got my first C in my, like on a report card in my life. I think I only had one B in high school and I just didn't like it. So at the end of my first semester, I wanted to change it. Like, nope, stick with it. <laughs> and at the end of my second semester, <laughs> I wanted I wanted it less. So I switched majors and I guess partially building on the, you know, I was better at math. And the reality of it is that I was taking out loans um, and I was going to have to pay them off. So I needed to find, I needed a major that was going to get me a job when I got out of college. And when I was in college, uh, we weren't in great economic times. It was the accountants and the engineers who were getting jobs. And I decided I was less ill-suited to be an accountant than an engineer. In hindsight, it served me really well. I, di I did well in it. I got a job. I think it accounting is a great, it gives you a great basis for understanding business. And I sort of went into account, like both as a major and my first job in um what was then a big eight accounting firm was like, I'm using this as a stepping stone. I don't, I, I never wanted to be a partner. I, like that just wasn't not what I wanted to do, but I knew it would be a good basis to do whatever came next. So what was your first job then coming out of college? I worked in uh, public accounting here in Manhattan. It was uh, pretty crazy. <laughs> and, and I think um, part of what you learn is, you know, you learn technical or other skills in college um, maybe you don't learn how to work <laughs> like in the same way, because a lot of what you're doing in college, you're doing on your own. Right. And and you know, maybe once in a while you're doing team things. But in the work world, that's you're probably working with other people. So sort of uh, dealing with that. And then the added thing that I had was because, because of the kind of work I was doing, I had a different boss on each assignment. So it was also getting used to like working with different people and doing different kind of things. But that was really interesting to me. Like, and to this day, like, I don't want to go to work and do the same thing every day. I like the variety. I like the like intellectual stimulation. I like meeting a lot of new people. So yeah, that was my first job. So now looking back, if you had to recommend certain kind of roles, younger generation who's coming out, skills to develop for success for later on in career, yeah. what would be some of those um, jobs or certain roles you would recommend? So like I said, I thought like accounting was, a, if you want to go into business, uh, accounting, you know, or finance is a great way to start because the reality of it is whether you're running your own business or you're in a big organization, the numbers have to work. <laughs> there has to be more cash coming in and going out sooner or later. So understanding that uh, I think is really helpful. And then the other thing, um, like almost complete opposite, it's I think like sales is a great place to start a business uh, uh, your career also, because the reality of it is you're always, no matter what you're doing, you're always selling. So if you can, right, whether you're selling yourself or selling an idea. So I think um, developing sales skills is a great thing to do early in your career. 
So let's talk a little bit about mobility. So you have led a lot of global teams. You have traveled mm-hmm. um, for work. How does mobility add another dimension to you as a leader? What has that really helped you achieve? Well, first of all, I just like travel <laughs> and I like exploring uh, new cultures and new countries. So it's just, it feeds me as a human being. Uh, and and oddly, I had never been on, like I didn't have a passport till I was 24, 25. And the, and the first time I got a passport was for a business trip actually. But I think, you know, regardless of where you're working, you're going to be dealing with people who aren't like you, right? And even if, you know, I'm here in New York, right? There are people from all kinds of countries, you know, different religious and ethnic backgrounds and sort of immersing yourself in it. And I had the opportunity like to spend months in other countries is you should get more of a sensitivity on what's going on outside your world. And the reality of it is, even if you're based here and you have a team here um, and your company is here, your customers are probably all over the world. So understanding, you know, just gives you a way of understanding your your customers and your coworkers. So the next big thing we always hear about is networking. You know, how do we as women network? And I know that's a very near and dear topic to you. So tell us what does networking mean for you and how do you go about it? So I have to tell you, this is something I've learned. Uh, I'm probably not a natural networker, um, partially because I'm an introvert. Um, So nothing terrifies me more than walking into a room where I don't know people to this day. I don't, I don't like doing it. Um, But at some point you realize um, whether it's, you're looking for a role or you just want to experience different things or get a a broader view of the world is that you're going to do that through other people. Right. I, I think a lot of times, and this was certainly the case for me, like we had this sort of nasty taste in our mouth about networking because we've all been with the person who's working the room and you know, that's all like, they either want, you know, the most contacts, like it's like, they want, they, they need to go home and say, I like, I met this many people and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think what turned it for me is when I like reframed it as really, like, I don't want anything from them, right? I want to come from a place of giving and I want to build a relationship and that, that I'm good at. Right. And that I'm comfortable with. So part of it was the mental reframe. The other thing I've learned is, you know, often your your network is tight. Like so it's people like you. Right. And so it's people in your industry or your function or your geography, whatever. You have some affinity point. And I think, well, that's great. I think you need you need to be broader. I actually have a buddy, Lauren Greif, who posted something this week about the value of clusters of networks, right? So, it, you know, if you have your work network and your community network and maybe your school network and some other cause you're interested in network, that that actually provides the best value. And, and it's funny because as after seeing Lauren's post this week and preparing for this, it's like, Oh, I've kind of gotten a little siloed in my networking. So I, I have, I have a little to do after after we finish recording this. But and I think you know what, what you'll find is with those clusters and people who aren't like you, a lot of time, like the people who are like you, think like you, have the same ideas, have the same background. It's people who are very different than you who can actually maybe challenge you a little bit. And you'd also mentioned in our last conversation how. Relationships have become more intense with COVID because we kind of really focused. And even though you were meeting 
for the first time on Zoom, it was a very, you know, one-on-one, very focused conversations, really getting to know the person, especially yeah. given what all of us were going through at the time. Can you speak a little bit about that? Like, how has that changed after, you know, all the COVID restrictions? Yeah, you know, know? And I, I think part of it is we, we, took, we took the relationships for granted, before, and maybe that was it, right? So the kind of doubling down, and I think, you know, one of the things that came out of COVID is maybe we realized how much we needed each other. Right. And, you know, and also I think it was the first moment in time because there have been other pandemics, but they were sort of localized a little bit. Right. This was we were all experiencing some version of the same thing, regardless of where we were. Right. It might have been it was a little bit more intense here in in New York City than it was in other places. But that like we had we had that point of connection and we were all learning right? Like none of us, no one could come into it and say, yeah, I know how to deal with this because I've dealt with it three times before, right? (laughs) Because no one had dealt with it. So we were all learning and exploring and like I said, we needed each other. And I know I had people that, you know, I was casually uh, that I knew uh, who I reconnected with, you know, who had been leaving remote team, like they worked out of their homes and were work. So that part of it, they had figured out. I do think maybe we, we just realized how important those relationships were. And I, I my hope is that, the, you know, there are a couple of good things that came out, of, like try to focus on the good things that came out of the pandemic. And if realizing that relationships were important and having these kind of conversations was important, like to continue doing that. You also made a really interesting observation about work-life balance. You said there is nothing like work-life balance, but it's a blend. So with your son, and I know this was a while back when your yeah. son was younger, But then over the years, I'm sure you have seen other mothers deal with it. So what is that ideal blend like? Um, So I actually think the the ideal blend is right, because it's 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 you're always choosing. Right. And I I think the women I've seen handled it the best is like whether it's am I going to leave early today to do something or am I going to go pick them up at school or am I going to go to this school or whatever it is, um, or I need to, you know, take my parents or my partner or whoever to medical is like being clear on what your values are, making a decision and then not thinking about it again. Because what I, I think the thing that kills us the most is, okay, I'm, I've decided I'm going to go to the kids, whatever. And then the whole time you're obsessing about that you should be at work, right? So just make the decision, explain it to whoever you need to do it, like quickly, right? <laughs> like not like a whole story, like I've, I'm leaving early today because or I'm going to be in late today because, or with your family, like you were mentioning that you've got a big deal going on, right? Like, okay, this week, I'm not going to be able to like, to be able to do it and just to have honest conversation. But I, but I think the biggest problem, the biggest challenge is when we just keep obsessing <laughs> after the fact, I should have, I should have, I should have make the best decision you can and go with it. So you're very big on women supporting women, women empowerment. Um, You also started the Women's Initiative at McGraw Hill. So what makes you so passionate about it? You know, it was, you know, maybe the thing that like the light bulb went out, as I said, like I was, you know, I went to college, it was mostly men. When I started in the workforce, it was mostly men. And like at some point it didn't occur to me that it wasn't a problem. And then I was at a retirement party for, uh, a male colleague of mine who I really admired. And, um, you know, we were in this, you know, the 50th floor in our world headquarters. I don't know, there are 100 and, 150 people there. And I was talking to two of my buddies and realized we were the only women in the room. 
other than the wait staff and uh, Bob's wife. And it's like, this is just like, I don't care what the stats say, <laughs> right? Like, this is crazy. Like, this is a representative group. A lot of the rooms that I sit in are like this, right? And I might still be the only woman and probably worse if you're a woman who's also a person of color or, you know, in some other underrepresented group. And it just like all of a sudden the light bulb went out and it, and it's, I'm like, okay, we need to do something about this. And I, at the time was reporting to the CHRO of our organization. And he's like, you know, go after it basically. And um, coincidentally, uh, I guess, and that led to, he wanted to do a women's leadership conference. And I really knew, and I'm one of these people, like someone asked me to do something. I say, yes. So he asked me to um, do this leadership conference. I realized I didn't know anything (laughs) about running a conference. I really didn't know anything about I knew a little bit about leadership development, but not like on a broad basis. So I went to another women's uh, leadership uh, conference here in the city and uh, Ursula Burns, uh, who was ultimately the CEO of um, Xerox, she was not in that position at the time, uh, spoke and, uh, you know, I was kind of distracted, probably at the time on my Blackberry, that's how long ago it was, it was in 2003, uh, 2003. and um, I... Uh, she, she was talking and she said that, you know, she always wondered like, okay, there's a problem with women. There's a problem with people of color. And she kept thinking about like, why doesn't the board do something about it? Why doesn't the CH, the CEO do something about it? Why doesn't the CHRO do something about it? And she said, she said she woke up one morning and thought, uh, if it's not important enough to me to do something about it, why is it, you know, why would I expect it to be important? enough to them. And I sort of realized it's like, we all have a role to play in making things more equitable, right? And I'm not going to change the world, but if I can change a couple of things, if I can make things better for my colleagues, right? And then, you know, it started with my colleagues at S&P McGraw-Hill and then grew broader because sort of the more I, then I started learning about it, the more I realized it wasn't just a problem with us, Right, that the problem was a lot broader, and I and I initially started with a uh, focus on women, and then brought broadened it to like any underrepresented group. Have you had any naysayers in life? Oh, you always have naysayers, <laughs> uh, and unfortunately for me, that the biggest one I had was another woman. So I think that you know the other thing is you know I haven't had that many women bosses, and I have to say across the board, my male bosses were much better than the women I had as bosses, which is, which is a shame. And not, it's not that I, I like, like a boss to like hold me to high standards, but just the like kind of not great leadership behavior. In fact, I had one woman who I I ultimately worked for, but we were peers at the time. And she said to me, when I started the women's initiative, like, you should really focus on yourself, not on everybody else. Cause that's what she was doing. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, Uh, Yeah, they're always going to be. And most of the, actually, the naysayers were a lot around not be focused on my day job uh, and having this broader focus on making things better for other people. So there are a lot of stereotypes surrounding women, and we play into it a lot of times. So any examples you have seen that really we we do disservice to ourselves? So I'll tell you something I I, like, and I think I'm pretty aware. I'll I'll tell you something I did recently and I did it and I caught myself. So uh, a buddy of mine was doing, she's, she's an executive coach and a wall street journal, a bestseller author. So Randy was doing a zoom, a lunchtime, like a lunch and learn zoom on uh, back to school mindset for like work. 
right? Um, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. So I, uh, I have two daughter-in-laws. So I sent it to my daughter-in-law who has like a job that gets her a paycheck, right? I sent it to her. I didn't initially send it to my daughter-in-law who stays at home caring for my three grandchildren. And I'm like, she's got a job, right? So I think we we stereotype that. And then I, as I told you, my my other one is like, sometimes we'd like walk into it and more than like that women have to be the caregivers, like at, like women are the care worker, caregivers at work. So whether that's like, they're going to fetch the coffee or they do whatever. And, and the biggest one, and I think women play into is, the candy and the treats in the office, right? <laughs> they like, and I know someone who's like, when they got their first job, like their, their, when their parents gave them a thing of candy. And it's like, yeah, even if you're the nurturing, like I like feeding people, sort of you don't want like to send the message to everybody that women are the ones who are going to take care of the food in the workplace. <laughs> even if you're doing that at home, right? And just sometimes like we do things that we're think we're going to be great. Like we're just being kind, but like, I think sometimes we need to think about how it goes broader, right? Like, and what does it, like, what message am I sending to the other women and to the men? So like, I love the candy dish. (laughs) So have you had mentors and you're big on mentoring as well. So what got you into mentoring and have you had any mentors that really stood out? Oddly enough, uh, I am, you know, like a, a serial mentor. I've written a book on mentoring and I've never had a mentor. I mean, I think partially it was that for most of my career, it wasn't a thing, right? Like it wasn't, um, people just didn't have it. And the company I was in um, didn't have a mentoring program. And, um, you know, at this women's uh, conference that I mentioned with Ursula Burns, they had breakout groups in the afternoon and one of them was on mentoring. So I just happened to go to that. And that sort of, again, like kind of, it's like, wow, that's like, something that's really actionable. And I, and I do believe that most people want to help their colleagues. And it's like, wow, like if, if there was a program I could have joined and someone would have matched me, like I wouldn't even know who to ask kind of thing. And I think sometimes now people don't know how to ask, you know, we launched this program, which was still, it's still in place now. It was like getting Taylor Swift tickets, right? Like we would launch like the, you know, the application and we can only take a hundred partnerships at each phase and it would close out in five minutes. And, and what I realized uh, the more I mentored is like, I started it because it's like, well, this is like the right thing to do. And I wish I had one. And a lot of other people did it because they had a mentor. And then I realized I was learning a lot from my mentees, right? Because sometimes when you're in really senior positions, you sort of get a little bit separated from what's really going on in the organization. And then to your the point we made earlier about like the mobility is at one point I was running a business in Southern Europe and um, I sort of got the sense that maybe it was hard for the employees who were physically far away from the mothership. So I found, it, I, the business was based out of primarily out of Madrid, and I was able to find a mentee who was elsewhere in the organization who was in Madrid, right? And so I got like, learned a little bit about culture. At one point when I was in Latin America, I, and I tell the story in the book, I I was uh, meeting like vendors and, and customers and a lot of the, well, both the men and the women were like greeting me with a kiss. And you also see that a lot in Europe. And I, and I sort of, and there was nothing like icky about the kiss. And so I had someone that I was mentoring in, in Latin America and I'm like, so like, tell me about like, who do I kiss? And she said, everybody just, she's like, it, it's just their cultural thing. But like, you're not going to Google that and get a good answer. Like you need to, and I, I needed to talk to someone who was 
also a professional. And she's like, they don't, it's just a greeting. And like, I'm not going to try to undo that people in certain cultures greet men with a handshake and women with a kick. Like, it's like, I'm, I'm not going to fight that battle. Right. Like, like I, and that's not, to me, that's not, there's nothing sexual or sexual harassment about it. So a part of the, like the reason I kept with it is I've learned a lot and I've seen how much value it provides to other people. And I've also learned from, because I was leading a program, we would like, and we kept everything confidential, but we'd get the shared learnings from everybody in the program, right? Which was another great, because I may not be the most creative person in the world. And some of the other mentors were like a lot more creative. So at one point there was a mentee who was struggling with, like she would prepare, prepare for a meeting. And then she would get to the meeting and she'd get a curveball. Like they, someone would ask a question, like just why, right? And she would get all flustered. So her her mentor suggested they go to an improv class together. I like I never would have thought about that. I've used it since then, <laughs> but I was able to learn from another mentor. You know, uh, an approach that you could use with anybody, right? If they were struggling with something like that. So now let's talk about the book. I know we've referenced the book a couple of times. How did the book come about? And if you can tell our listeners what it's yeah, about. so the, the the book is a great story and probably goes to the the networking and and relationship building. So I'm I'm a person who like has always said everybody has a book in them. And at one point, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I actually thought about, and I remember doing an outline on a book, like just on leadership, women's leadership, and then kind of got busy and di- didn't think about it. And I remember I actually physically moved and left because I had done it on paper. I left it. I got rid of it when I moved. And uh, I was having lunch with a, a buddy of mine that I know through this network I'm in chief. And we were just like chatting generally. And I knew Sundia was interested in writing a book and was going to be doing this program with a professor out of Georgetown. And uh, at some point during COVID, and this this was in June of 2021, she decided she was going to write something else. And the book she was going to write initially uh, was on this uh, this women's organization, Chief. And so she said, I decided to write something else. And I was like, oh, that's great. And she said, but the, the book still needs to be written and you should write it. <laughs> So I did. Uh, and I didn't I didn't write that book, but it was sort of, you know, someone else gave me the push. And I think what I realized and to, to the value in networks is uh, other like finance and ops gals um, or men, if, if like we were talking about, should I write a book? Like their vision probably would have been, well, you can write a book about finance and ops, which to me would be like really boring that I have. And I and I actually don't have like even the technical qualifications to, to write a book about either of those things. And I sort of, I can't, maybe I'll try some to find, but um, like fiction wasn't my thing, but she suggested like the women's thing. And then, so I started on one thing and then I got a text from uh, a mentee of mine that we've been together for 19 years now. Uh, and she just, she sent me a text saying that she'd been appointed the board chair of the development foundation at her organization. Uh, and I'm like, you know what I'm going to write about? I'm going to write about mentoring. And then I started down one track and I was talking to someone else in my network who's known for me for a while. She's like, like, what are you talking? Like it was going to, I was going to write about selfish mentoring. And she's like, what are you talking about? You are all about women supporting other women. That's what you need to write about. So that's sort of right. Like I had to do the writing, but sort of I like the inspiration. Um, so like whether it was that community and then the program I did, one of the things that they really encouraged is a lot of times we think like that writers like like need to go to like some island or some cabin and be alone. 
and they really emphasized the sense of community. So I had the community within the program and then another little sub community uh, um, of like five of us who would like occasionally like get together and just sit in a room uh, and write. Probably not the ideal situation for, for me, but also to just talk, like, talk about the ups and downs of the process and only another writer like would understand, right? And I, I never had a problem with writer's block, but other people did. And like, just it happens to most people. Yeah. So it was all about the, the network. And, you know, my goal in writing the book was just like, I it was, it was actually fun. It was one of the best things I've ever done to help some people. You know, I didn't, the proceeds for the book, which are not significant, um, are going to a charity that supports um, mentoring. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Michelle. This was such a great conversation. Yeah. Any closing comments for our listeners? Um, you know, I think that the the one thing I'd say, and you talked about planning, is um, I think we sometimes sweat with plans too much, whether it's where you're going to go to college or what you're going to do after college. Uh, you know, again, it would be like, just come up with a reasonable plan and realize you're going to change it a lot. And don't think that there's anything wrong, whether it's you picked the wrong school or the wrong major or the the wrong first job. And then like focus on getting into college, going to college. If you have to change it, you have to change it. Finding a job if you have to change it. It's like, I think that's probably my biggest learning because I'm like, kind of like, I like like the plan. (laughs) And the plans are going to get blown up all the time. Thank you so much for your time, Michelle. And all the great advice and congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank you so much.